0: Harry not walking through that door. We're talking about practice. Not a game,
1: not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. It's my team. It's my quarterback. Okay.
0: It is...
2: Go! Go!
1: the man! You gotta beat the man! The 2-1. One
2: the the
1: This is the Powers on Sports Podcast. Welcome back to the Powers on Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Jason, down here in Tampa. We are about eleven or twelve days into the Olympics, depending on when you are listening to this podcast. Olympic Games are wrapping up this weekend. We've got, well, I just want to give a shout out to Arion Knighton. What a job of by him, the 17-year-old 200-meter sprinter from here in Tampa, reaching the 200-meter final. He did not win a medal, but what a career he has in front of him. Nothing but great things to look forward to from Arion throughout his career and all the athletes that have that have obtained a medal here in the Tokyo Olympics. What a job by each and every one of them. And what a job by each and every athlete that didn't win a medal. You know, what an accomplishment to make the Olympics under the scrutiny of COVID, under the, the uh, uh, increased uh, COVID testing and all the sacrifices they had to make outside of a normal Olympic cycle. So kudos to all those athletes Volunteers and organizers for uh, getting the games on. So we got a good episode for you this week. We're going to talk to Steve Carney. Steve Carney is a, is a Tampa Bay Rays insider here in the Tampa Bay area. He he also covers all of Major League Baseball. We're gonna we're gonna recap the trade deadline, the uh, pennant races upcoming here in August and September. There are several uh, very good pennant races that are that are coming together, especially after the trade deadline. So we're gonna talk all things. Major League Baseball with Steve Carney, and then we're going to speak with Matt Zemek. Matt Zemek is a uh, regular contributor on the podcast. Matt works is the editor at Trojan Wire. He covers uh, the USC Trojans as well as the Pac twelve. We're going to talk conference realignment with Oklahoma, Texas going to the SEC. What does the Big Twelve do? What does the Pac twelve do? Are there potential partnerships, mergers, all that kind of good stuff related to college athletics? We're also going to hit on the name, image, and likeness uh, topic and how that's affected uh, the world of college athletics so far in the first month or so that that's been in effect. So enjoy the podcast. Remember, subscribe, rate, and review. You can find us uh, all over the place, but tell your friends about the podcast. We'd love to have some more viewers. If you have any comments, reach out to us at Sports on Twitter, and let's hear from you. We have some good stuff coming up in the future weeks. We're going to do a big college football preview uh, here in the next couple of weeks. We're going to continue to hit on the NFL and such, and then we're obviously going to hit on them when baseball playoffs and such get going in in September. So lots of good stuff coming up on the Powers on Sports podcast. Appreciate you finding us, and enjoy my chats with Steve Carney and Matt Zemek. Welcome Welcome back to the podcast. Appreciate you finding us on the various podcast platforms that, that you find us on. We've got an awesome interview coming up here. We're going to talk some MLB pennant races, trade deadlines, uh, and no, nobody better to do that than, than with Steve Carney. Steve is the, Rays, the Tampa Bay Rays insider down here in Tampa. Steve hosts a couple of podcasts, the UTOR podcast, as well as the Pewtercast. And Steve is a longtime radio uh, radio guy here in the Tampa Bay area. So welcome back to the podcast, Steve.
0: Hey, it's good to see you, Jason. Good to be on your podcast.
1: Let's get right to it. Big news out of the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, we're we're going to hit the trade deadline. We're going to hit the, the, the pennant races. But big news out of the Rays organization over the weekend. Tyler Glass now has been declared out for the year. Going to have Tommy John surgery. Obviously, we knew he had an arm injury a couple months ago. We, there was some thought that he might be back September for the pennant race, but it was confirmed yesterday by the Rays that Glasnow is gonna have Tommy John and probably won't see him until spring training of 2023. Just your thoughts.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of a kind of a disappointing uh moment for, for Glasnow. He had done everything that uh, he had done had possible to try and pitch again this year. You know, should they shut him down? uh, for eight weeks and they had got him to start, uh, playing catch and he had seemed to be okay playing catch. But then on, uh, on Friday, he, uh, he got on the mound, uh, for the first time, uh, he went out to Dallas, uh, to, in order to do so, Dr. Keith Meister, who is one of the big, uh, arm experts, uh, is his practice is out in Dallas. And he is the one that, uh, um, that Glass now trusts when it comes to his arm. So they went to Dallas for him to, to throw on a mound for the first time, and it just didn't feel right. And so they made the decision. Uh, Dr. Meister recommended that uh, Glass now have Tommy John surgery. Um, he's going to get another opinion before he officially goes under the knife, but it looks like he has come to, to come to the decision That with all of the arm issues that he's had over the last couple of years, remember, he missed almost all of 2019 uh, with uh, with arm issues. He had a great April in 2019. Right. And and then came down with a with the arm issue and was out until September. Well, you know, it's it's not getting any better. And so now uh, it's time to nip this thing in the bud. Uh, he looks like he's going to have the procedure. It may be as early as uh, sometime this week. Right. But uh, if that is indeed the case, not only would 2021 be absolutely done, but, uh, you know, there is a good chance that he could miss all of 2022 as well. And of course, in 2023, he comes back, and that's his last year before he becomes right. a free agent. Right. So, uh, so he wants to get this done. You know, he doesn't want to have any sort of uh, uh, anything that uh, holds him back from the possibility of not having uh, a fully healthy walk year. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, if you're a Tampa Bay Rays fan, uh, you know that that's what that is for for because he's going to make a boatload of money. And right now, the Rays don't have. Uh, they don't have the means in order to pay someone like Glass now the the two hundred or the two or the two hundred and fifty million dollars uh when he becomes a free agent so it will end up being most likely his walk year at that point but it's disappointing for Rays fans because they were hoping that they were gonna have him at some point uh leading into the postseason uh when you know right now their starting rotation is very inexperienced you have Ryan Yarbrough. And then uh, on top of that, Shane McClanahan, who made his Major League debut last postseason. And then you're probably going to have three rookies. Fleming. In, uh, Fleming, Patino. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, Michael Waka, um, who is, uh, you know, been, who's on a one-year deal on a bat-on-yourself deal. So, yeah, they yeah, wanted it now.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we were gonna, I was going to get to the starting pitching issue as we get to, towards the playoffs here in a little bit. Um, you Do you think there's any correlation between the – the substances over the years, the use of all the substances to the, to some arm injuries, just how they grip the ball, get a better feel of the ball. Do you think there's any correlation there? Do you think that it's just something that's been building with glass now over the, over the last couple of years?
0: You know, I asked pitching coach Kyle Snyder about that uh, on Saturday. And he said that, you know, he's, he couldn't tell me definitively that there's not that there's nothing that's there's not a causal relationship between the, um, between his prior injuries uh, like the one in 2019 and what right. he was going through here in 2021. And he said, you know, any, any sort of accusation that he could make on sticky stuff uh, causing arm injuries would be anecdotal at So, uh there's no reason to think that it, it has anything to do with anything other than, you know, just a freak accident. Cause that's what ha- that can happen. So, you right. know, sometimes it's just, freak accidents happen
1: and not everybody's arms built the same i mean everybody's arms you know
0: well you know this is a former as a as a as a former athlete uh you know throwing a baseball is not a natural motion right it's it's not it puts a lot of stress on your shoulder and your elbow throwing throwing a baseball overhead uh and so uh you know it, these things tend to happen. And especially as guys pitch harder and harder. I mean, when you're th- throwing a hundred miles an hour, that puts a, so much stress on your, on your elbow and the way that guys, the way that guys throw um, you're, you're seeing more and more of these Tommy John surgeries. You're seeing younger and younger. You're, you're starting to hear about high school kids yeah. that are having Tommy John surgery because they're throwing so hard, so young before all of you, before, you know, you're, you're, elbow can grow up and develop so uh, i i think that you know it's just it's become unfortunately the fact of the game right now is that uh you know there's going to be more and more of these surgeries and it's sticky stuff or not uh it's going to happen
1: and the weird the weird thing is when we were younger it was way more rotator cuff injuries with pitchers than it was elbows now in the last 15 20, 15 years or so it's been elbow the you know mm-hmm. the, the ligament the elbow and part of that you think of is maybe kids are th- playing more and more uh, travel baseball at younger ages, more and more pitching. There's not as, you know, more and more kids are specializing just in baseball, things like that. And they're playing year round.
0: Not only that, not only that, but uh, I was talking with, then um, this was now probably close to a decade ago. Um, Mike Marshall, the former uh, uh, National League Cy Young award winner. He's a, he was a uh, kinesiologist. Uh, he had a doctorate degree and worked for many, many years. And, and Mike, uh, just passed away this year. Um, Mike pa- uh, worked with young players and he was very, um, very big into how the, in, into the mechanics of the arm and yeah. what ends up happening. And if you're, if you're, uh, I don't know if you, if you post the zoom, uh, on, on this, on your podcast, uh, but, uh, and I'm, I'm, so I'm going to do this in front of the camera that we're, we're doing yeah. this from, um, when it comes to uh, a throwing motion, uh, he, he, he showed that the healthy throwing motion, and you can do this as you're listening, just take your pitching hand, uh, whatever hand you throw a ball with, and, and the, 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 norm, the, the way to keep your elbow healthy is to throw with what is called a pronated wrist. And so a pronated wrist is when, you, when you're releasing the ball, your thumb is down, and your wrist is pointing to the outside, whether it's your left wrist, uh, the, the bottom of your wrist is pointing to your left. If you throw right handed, the bottom of your wrist is pointing to the right. That way all of the stress goes off of the elbow because your elbow is at a is at a curved degree right. where it is where it's convex, uh, where it's pointing up, your elbow is pointing up. And, th- and if you and if all you have to do is move your arm from about your head down to about your belly button you don't have to do it hard just do it normal just just slowly and all you'll do is you'll feel this you'll feel the weight of your arm on your shoulder and not on your elbow what happens is a lot of guys are throwing with their thumb up and the bottom of their wrist pointing in and what that does and it, all you have to do is take it from your arm down down to your belly button is you feel all the tension the weight of your arm and all of that tension goes right onto your elbow and that's what causes the stress
1: on the ligaments interesting that's that's a great it's a great illustration i didn't i did not know that so yeah it makes perfect sense and uh all right let's get to the let's get to the trade deadline all over the league it was a wild and willy trade deadline you had i think 10 all-stars get traded on 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 friday You know, big names, the Cubs cleaned house. You had Baez, Bryant, Rizzo, Kimbrell all went. Scherzer and Max uh, Trey Turner went. Barrios went from the the Twins. The Braves traded for an all-new outfield. The Rays, obviously, a few days before got Nelson Cruz. They traded Rich Hill, traded uh, Castillo. Just your thoughts of the trade deadline, one of the wildest we've ever seen. Yeah, it's wild and woolly. And it
0: seems like teams that – feel like they're in the chase went out and made the big splashes you know the yankees went out and they got anthony rizzo and joey gallo to help uh with their left-handed power issues uh because uh, both of those guys have more home runs by themselves than the entire left-handed hitting uh yankees (laughs) position players combined, which is just a ridiculous number. And especially for a Yankees team where they've got the jet stream that goes out to right field. I mean, why do they not have any left-handed power? Um, And then of course we got a chance to see some old fashioned Yankees screwing over the Red Sox (laughs) as uh, Boston was dying for Rizzo. They need someone that can play first base because let's face it, Bobby Dahlbeck is not uh, the answer for them at first base. they were looking for Anthony Rizzo, Jed Hoyer's like, hey, here's Anthony Rizzo, and he's going to the Yankees, Come which I him. thought was yep. yeah, I which I thought was hilarious that the Yankees <laughs> go in there to screw over the Red Sox again. Thank you, Brian Cashman. Um, you know, I, I look at what the Dodgers did, and it's like embarrassment of riches. I mean, I Andrew Friedman must just go, it's only money, and I can only imagine how much of the deferred money of Max Scherzer's contract he told Mike Rizzo he's going to pay because uh, Scherzer's contract uh, put pause in almost every baseball front office. He's owed $105 million between 2022 and 2028. He's going to make $15 million a year for the next uh, seven years to not play for the Nationals or to, or on top of whatever he makes from the Nationals uh, if he
1: signs a new deal there. Uh it's we, just- we did just pass Bobby Bonilla Day about a month ago. So Max it's going to be the Max Scherzer uh the new he's going to be the new Bobby Bonilla. Well, ex- except
0: Bobby's got a- another 15 years yeah. of-, of getting paid, which is ridiculous. And he's already been paid for the last 15 years. <laughs> I love Bobby. I see him I see him every spring uh in Port Charlotte. He works for the Players Association. Okay. So um, I, I will see, I see him, uh, every year when, uh, when Tony Clark comes around, Bobby, you always see Tony Clark, Bobby Bonilla and Dave Winfield all together. Great, great group of guys to talk hitting with. Yes. Um, but, but yeah, Scherzer's got a lot of deferred money, uh, left on the table. And so, uh, I can only imagine what the, that most of the negotiations, uh, with Mike Rizzo involved how much of this deferred money are you going to take right. off of my hands uh, to try and give me some wiggle room and then to take Trey Turner. I was going to say just throw
1: in Trey Turner.
0: <laughs> Why not? What, what the hell? I mean, it's uh, Andrew must go. It's only money. Yeah. You know, I'm only, I'm only going to get taxed on it. It's not a big deal. We've got the money in Los Angeles, right. but you figure both Los Angeles and San Diego had to make moves because they're both trailing the giants. And then the giants of course, go out and get Chris Bryant, yeah. Uh, to help out because Evan Longoria has been uh, has been injured for most of uh you know for about half the season with a shoulder issue and then they can use Bryant in the outfield as well to help supplement what they already have out there. Uh, yeah. it is an embarrassment of riches in the National League West and and of all of this the pennant races, I think that one might be oh, the yeah. most interesting because Absolutely. it's easily, Uh, going to be i i think that the giants the dodgers and the padres uh if you're if if you have mlb tv this is the best time to have the premium version because you can watch every single uh west coast game and it's and they're all going to be interesting
1: because what's going to happen in that division is the second and third place teams are going to play in a one game playoff it's not like i mean i mean they're playing all three are going to make it unless something really strange happens and the, and the other second and third place is going to be play, it's going to be Scherzer versus, you know, or it's going to be a combination of you, Darvish and Scherzer or whoever the combination is in that one game playoff. That's what's going to make that so awesome.
0: And someone's going home. Yeah. In, in that in if that uh, if that is indeed the case, it's why uh, winning the division this year is much more important than last year. Last year didn't matter because, uh, um, you know, wild card was best of three. And it's going back to a one game playoff here again this year, you know, talking to Rays players. That's why they say, you know, we don't, we don't want the wild card, right? Uh, we want, we want to, we want to win the division because we want to know that uh, our first uh, time in the playoffs is going to be best of five and it's not going to be hinged on, oh my God, what happens if our starting pitcher has an awful, you know, gives up three runs in the first inning yeah. and we fall way
1: behind early. I was surprised the Red Sox didn't do something big to, like you said, get a bat at first base. You know, the White Sox reinforced their bullpen big time with, with Kimbrell to go with Hendricks. I liked what they did. They actually got a second baseman from the from Cleveland in, 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 as well. So I think that's a nice move for Tony La Russa. So it's, it's it's turning into a pretty heavyweight, uh, you know, the, the, the Rays are right there, obviously. They're going to make it in some, in some level. But, yeah, I mean, Toronto went out and got Barrios, Again, and and obviously the Yankees did the reinforcements they had. So it's going to be very interesting September. You know, baseball was nervous about being a boring September. I think you're going to have a wild September as far as the wild card in in a couple of these division races.
0: Yeah, there's going to be a lot of teams that are going to be nestled uh, within just a couple of games uh, of each other. And then, of course, uh, the rosters are going to expand from 26 to 28. So you're going to get a chance – Maybe to see some uh, some names of the future, uh, some guys maybe getting that call. Uh, you know, could Shane Boz, uh, the right. the uber uh, talented young pitcher, uh, who actually, if uh, on the day we're recording this, is starting for the U.S. Uh, Olympic team in Japan right now. Okay, uh, so he's gonna he's got the next he's got the next start uh, for the USA Olympic team. But could he be a part uh, of a September? Could Joe Ryan who um, who the Rays traded in order to get Nelson Cruz? Could he make his big league debut uh, for the Twins? Uh, you know, you look at some of these some of these young young prospects. They could be uh, they could be getting their first glimpse uh, of Major League Baseball in a pennant race, and it should be a lot of fun. Uh, I certainly don't think that September is going to be boring whatsoever this year for major league
1: baseball. And let's get to the race specifically, obviously uh, the, the, the shortage, it seems like is in the starting pitching. It's going to be a very much bullpen dependent situation again, like in years past. What are your thoughts on one Nelly Cruz, great acquisition with Cruz. They trade rich Hill away. Was there a thought that was that more of a financial decision with Rich Hill because they went and got Cruz to trade rich Hill to kind of balance out the books what was what was the thought behind the uh, trading Rich Hill away? No, it, it
0: wasn't. It wasn't a salary issue whatsoever because they, uh, in the deal, picked up Tommy Hunter, the reliever who's not going to okay. pitch this year. He's on the sixty-day IL, but they that that salary was about the same. Um, what the trade of Rich Hill was about was trying to find a path. For Luis Patino to have some consistency at the big league yeah. level, because this year he had had a start at the big leagues, they would send him down to Durham. He would have to make two or three starts for the Bulls, and then they would bring him back up. He would have another spot start. They wanted an op. They wanted to have him have an opportunity to get some consistency at the big league level, and so they looked at, um, they talked to a number of teams about the their uh, veteran guys. Yeah. Uh, and the the guy that came up was Rich Hill. Um, you know the Mets were looking for a left-handed starter, and so they were able uh, to move Hill. They got um a young uh, single leg catcher and Matt Dyer along right. with Hunter back uh, in order uh, in order to get Hill. And you know Hill has not been good in his two starts with the Mets. He's gone ten innings. He's given up seven earned runs. Uh, so his ERA is just under seven. Um, and you know I really do think that the Rays did a good job. Of being able to get something for Hill, he was going to walk at the end of the year anyway. Right. Uh, so you were only going to get a draft pick, and now you get something that's uh, that's much more substantial than just a a pick in the uh, after the second round, a competitive balance B pick uh, for for Rich Hill. You get something with a li- with a little bit more substance. You get another catcher in the system, which is always a a, a big plus. The thing about Nelson Cruz's um, deal uh, at the trade deadline for the Rays was the timing. And I wrote this on my website, stp9.com. When it came to the trade deadline for the Rays, timing turned out to be key because to me, I thought that the Rays started the trade deadline much earlier than, than everybody else. And I'm not just talking about a week early with Nelson Cruz. Uh, the Rays have always been ahead of the curve when it comes to everything. You know, infield uh, super utility guys, infield shits, the opener. And now... I, vent- I, I argued that the Rays actually started the trade their trade deadline in February because they traded a, a young catcher named Ronaldo Hernandez to the Boston Red Sox at that time and got a pair of pitchers, both of whom uh, had, a, had a piece in Saturday's win that got them into first place, Jeffrey Springs and Chris Maza. Yeah. And they identified early that they thought that their bullpen was going to be their area of weakness and the area that they were going to have to shore up. They yep. go out and get Mazin Springs in February. In, mid, in late May, they trade Willie Adamas and get J.P. Fireisen and Drew Rasmussen. And then a couple of weeks later, they trade uh, a minor leaguer named Michael Plassmeyer to the San Francisco Giants and pick up Matt Whistler. Yep. And then uh, 24 hours before the deadline, they trade Diego Castillo to Seattle and get a young pitcher named J.T. Or I, I shouldn't say a young pitcher. He's actually older than Castillo. Uh, a pitcher named J.T. Chagua. Uh, to help with to help with their bullpen, and they have they have gotten all of these. They've done these moves, and they've done them gradually. And they did it where they could maximize the return on their investment from be just from market levels. And I argue that the Rays are the best at that in b- baseball, and maybe professional sports. They get more out of the return in their investment than anybody. And I think they started early so they could maximize that.
1: And and because they, I think they realized deep down, come playoff time they're going to be hoping if they can get four innings out of their starters come the playoffs, they're going to make it a five inning bullpen game every night in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And the more depth and the more versatility you have lefty righties, hard throwers, soft throwers against these different big hitting lineups is going to be better for them.
0: Yeah, it it will. And the other thing that, that they were able to do by, by spacing it all out. I mean, if you wait until 24 hours before the trade deadline, when everybody is looking for those pieces, it's supply and demand More you know expensive. if they had, if if they, exactly uh they were able to get the guys that they needed for you know as little as they had to give up yeah, and yes willie Adamas was a huge yep. uh piece that they gave up i mean willie has put himself in the national league mvp race for what he's done in in milwaukee but they were able to get two pieces that i i would venture to say that if they had waited until you know july 30th to try and get JP Fire and Drew Rasmussen, I don't think they would have gotten one of those guys for Willie right. Adamas. And so I, I, and especially the way that Willie had been playing here in Tampa Bay, I, I think that I think they were able to get a, a huge return uh, on that investment because they did it in May
1: instead of in July. You listen to the Powers on Sports podcast. Jason with Steve Carney, Tampa Bay Rays insider. He's the founder of St. Pete Nine. Uh, He does a lot of great work. He he covers the Rays on a daily basis, does a lot of great work uh, all over the Rays organizations, very dialed in there. So we're just talking some MLB trade deadline. How do you think the Nelson Cruz acquisition is going to affect Wander Franco? Wander came up. I think it's going to be, I think it's a great, you know, mentor relationship with Wander and uh, Nelson Cruz, your thoughts.
0: Yeah. I mean, you got a 20 year old shortstop and a 41 year old designated hitter. Uh, Nelson Cruz has been in the big leagues since Wanda Franco was four years old. He's grown. I mean, Franco is from a baseball family. His uncles are Willie and Eric Ibar um, infielders, uh, both Uh, Eric Ibar, of course, a longtime shortstop with the uh, Los Angeles Angels. Willie Ibar was with the Rays for uh, a couple of years um, as a as a uh, as a corner infielder. Uh, But Nelson Cruz is uh, from that same area in the Dominican Republic as, uh, as Wander is too. So Nelson Cruz is like a God uh, to a lot of young Dominican players and to have him in, in that clubhouse as his teammate. And you think about it the first day that uh, those two guys are that that, the Nelson showed up to the team in Cleveland after being traded for uh, just over a week ago, he sat on the bus and who did he sit next to? Wanda Franco, you know, he, the, the mentorship started early and, you know, you talk to guys who were teammates of Nelson's in, in his different spots. Mike Zanino was teammates with him for four years, called him the best teammate he ever had. And so uh, to have uh, a piece like that and a guy that can still hit the bejesus out of left-handed pitching and pitching overall at 41, uh, you know, it's a huge, huge get. And it's and you know that the Rays front office identified Cruz as the number one piece that they were looking for because they gave up not just one but two of their really high prize top prospect almost major league ready arms in order to get him for just a couple of months. They knew this uh, almost immediately that that's the that's the piece that they needed, and they went out and got it, and they and they and they didn't wait. Uh, again, yeah, that's the front office and when they they identify. They execute, and then they evaluate. It's a really nice little feedback loop that they have to, uh, to judge whether or not their process is working. And I mentioned that in my column on stp9.com, which you can uh, see it's up. Uh, uh, it's, I, it may be one of the first uh, uh, pieces when you go to the website. It's up there.
1: Yep. I, I, I totally agree. And then, again, the Rays are, 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 the like you said, the best at maximizing their resources and their prospects. And flipping those guys. Any thought? Is there any? And give the, up, the fans an update. Chris Archer is he out of the mix completely for this season? Is there any? absolutely not? Okay, absolutely not. He he. In fact, uh, he is scheduled to have
0: uh, what is I forget if this is his fourth or his. I think this is his fourth rehab uh, start okay. in Durham. That okay. will come here tonight, as where uh, as we're taping this on August first. Um, he's he's going to pitch five innings, uh, seventy five pitches. Tonight, and they may end up say, you know what, you're ready. Uh and, and activate him. He could be ready as soon as Friday. Uh, and of course, Friday, great landing spot for Archer because they're in Baltimore against an awful Orioles team. <laughs> what better way to come back to the big leagues and say, you know, here, here's a nice soft pillow to land on. And, and he uh, taking on a team that's 28 games out of first
1: place. And he could be, I mean, I hate this. I mean, you, you you hope to say this, he could be a key piece down the stretch. I mean, if you could get six weeks worth of good decent starts out of Archer where at least he could eat up some innings. If you know, he's got some playoff experience. I mean, he could be a guy that you could rely on probably if if you had to in a game three or game four scenario uh, in a series, if you're up, if you had a game to play with where you can hopefully roll him out there. And again, he's got some guile and some plenty of big league experience.
0: Yep. And it seems like uh, a lot of the things that made Archer successful are now back when he came to spring training fastball was 91 92 miles an hour that doesn't play if you're Chris Archer uh when uh when he's been doing this rehab down in Durham fastball's 95 96 that's what you want to see out of Archer because it makes the slider that much more uh effective because the slider's coming in at uh at 86 87 and, and you're getting almost the 10 miles an hour difference uh on the slider and you get a lot of a lot more swing and miss when that happens as opposed to when your fastball and slider are much closer together. The delta, as they like to say, the difference in velocity between your fastball and slider, when that's when that's not very big, you're gonna get hit all around a lot.
1: Right. All right. Give me as we head down the stretch here, August into September, give me the X factor for the for the, for the for the Rays. Give me an X factor for the for the pennant race between the Rays and the Red Sox. What do you think is going to kind of be the determining factor here? I think that really the
0: determining factor for both the Rays and the Red Sox is going to be their starting pitching. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like Boston is going to get their big pitcher back yep. uh, here Chris down Sale. the stretch. As Chris Sale is very, very close to returning from his own Tommy John surgery, and so they're going to have him for the stretch run. But let's face it—you know, when you've got a guy that that has an uh, an arm action like Sales, where it's it's very long and lanky and it's all wild and weird and discombobulating um you know they're going to be very very careful with sale I I would assume that he is going to be on a pitch count uh, every time out I would think that you know 75 80 pitches yeah uh, they're going to start looking to try and getting him out of the game and and go to their bullpen uh but I really do think you know you look at starting pitching it's going to be so important both and these two teams They play tonight on Sunday night baseball, and they got nine more times the rest of the year. There's going to be a lot of Rays Red Sox games down the stretch. They're going to mean a whole heck of a lot between these two clubs.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Give me give me a give me a Rays player that you think is going to be who's on the roster now who needs to elevate his game a little bit, whether it's a batter or pitcher that's really going to help the Rays uh, progress through through the last two months here. Uh,
0: To me, it's going to be Shane McClanahan uh, on the on the Rays side. Uh, with Glassnow going down, I had Bob Melvin tell me earlier this year that he thought McClanahan was Glassnow from the left side. Hmm. Uh, you know, he throws he throws harder than now. He's 100, 101, 102 wow. miles an hour uh, when it comes to the fastball. And let's face it, if there's going to be one guy that's going to probably pitch a if there's a one-game playoff, uh, if they end up getting stuck with the wild card and they got one game, gonna be McClanahan because he just throws really really hard and he's he he's a he's a he's a he's a young i mean he's young he's 25 but uh you know he's got the he's got the playoff experience made his major league debut in the postseason that's how much they think of McClanahan. is that they they thought that he could handle starting his big league career in a very very difficult uh, situation like, like the playoffs. So uh, yeah, for me, it's going to be Shane McClanahan who uh, actually will pitch tonight on, on Sunday night baseball. So if you've got ESPN uh, and you're, and you're listening to this on, on August the 1st, I don't know when you're dropping this, but uh, hopefully uh, if you're, if you're listening to this after August the 1st, yeah. hopefully McClanahan had a big night uh, right. against the Red Sox and they're up a game and a half
1: after, after tonight. And I wouldn't be shocked. Like you mentioned before, the, the August call-ups, I wouldn't be shocked if a guy like Shane Boz gets called up and he might be a reliever, a spot reliever, where he makes an impact come playoff time. So the, the Rays are always great at that one more guy they bring up, that minor league unknown guy that ends up playing a key role down the stretch.
0: I'll give you a minor league unknown guy, and, you're, and people are going to go, who the hell is that? But talking with the front office, there is a pitcher named Dietrich Enns, uh, E-N-N-S, who is right now in Durham and is torn up AAA this year. Not on the 40-man roster. They would have to make room for him like they would have to make room for Boz. Neither of those guys is on the 40-man roster. But he has had such a huge year at AAA. It would not surprise me if they say to him, all right, kid, here's your shot in September, and give him a couple of opportunities uh to be player number 27 or 28, uh, at that point on an active roster he may not make uh the postseason but i think that they 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 think highly enough of him that they will give him an opportunity in september see
1: a pitcher he's a pitcher he's a pitcher he's a okay. left-handed
0: pitcher yep they got Ooh. a lot of those
1: they got a lot of those in this well season, in this you got to see the yankees and you got to see the red Sox. you got to have some left-handed some left-handed options so exactly well, Steve, great job man great continued great work tell the audience where they can find you one more time and uh Thanks for all your time, man. Uh,
0: Absolutely, Jason. Yeah, you can find me at stpete9.com, S-T-P-E-T-E 9. You can use the letter or you can spell it out or you can use the number. It both goes to the same spot. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Steve Carney and check out the Under the Orange Roof podcast at U-T-O-R podcast on Twitter.
1: We'll See you. Keep up the great work. Enjoy your coverage of the Rays down the stretch, and we'll see you come to playoffs, my man. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it, buddy. Have a good day. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into the Powers on Sports podcast. We really appreciate it. Remember to subscribe, rate and review. Before we get back to the episode, want to mention Titan Home Lending. If you have any home financing needs in the state of Florida, reach out to me, Jason Powers, Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. I can help you with a home purchase, with a refinance, with a cash-out refinance, with a renovation loan, a VA loan, FHA loan, conventional loan, and virtually anything in between relative to home financing. So reach out to me at Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. You can reach me on email at jpowers at titanhl.com. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Jason Powers down here in Tampa. We're, we're glad to have a regular guest of the podcast, Matt Zemeck, back with us. Matt, as you know, is the uh, editor for Trojan Wire, covers all things USC and the Pac-12, and he's my go-to guy when it comes to NCAA stuff, Pac-12, anything, anything west of the Mississippi. So welcome back to the podcast, Matt. Appreciate you joining us. Great to be back. I imagine we're going to talk some realignment. That's right. We're going to talk some real line. We're going to talk a little uh, Big 12 partnership potentially and some, and some name, image, and likeness stuff. Before we get to the college stuff, I want to talk about some Olympic things. I know you and I have both been watching the Olympics a little bit. We're about 10, 11 days into the Olympics, you know, um, at the time of this recording. So I want to get, just give you your thoughts. What events do you like to watch in the Olympics? I'm, I'm a swimming guy. and watch a little track and field. We actually have a kid here. Who's in the in the 200 meter final? He's a high school, 17 year old high school kid from Tampa. Is in the 200 meter final, Arian Knighton, and uh, literally the high school is five minutes down the street from where I live. So we're all excited. I think he I think he races on Tuesday, Wednesday night, American time. So we've got some uh, some lot of local flavor in the Olympics. Your thoughts on the Olympics and kind of your couple of your favorite sporting events that you've been watching.
2: Yeah. So I, I like track and field because it's like, it's the ultimate speed race. Uh, you know, the swimming's the swimming's fantastic, but track and field, I especially gravitate toward that 100 and 200, especially, you know, just like the speed. Uh, the other interesting event was Olympic golf. And here's the, was the epiphany. Like I didn't, I wasn't all over this like first round, second round, but certainly third round and especially the final round. The thing that hit me Jason about this was like, you, these guys are not going for paychecks. Like, you know, it's a pretty big deal to finish in the top five or top 10 on a regular PGA Tour event because that gets you benefits down the line. And, you know, the difference between third uh, or four rather fourth place and eighth place, that's, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. So, like, there's value in, you know, making sure you make that putt, that 10-foot par putt for fourth place uh, so you don't fall into, you know, ninth. But for for Olympic golf, you have to finish top three. Like if you're fourth, what that doesn't mean anything at the Olympics. So it incentivized very aggressive shot selection. Yep. So that was a revelation to me. Yeah. And I know Olympic golf had been there um in previous years, like in Rio 2016. Uh, but I really focused on the the final round of Olympic golf, and that was kind of like the big aha moment. So that was really neat. And and I don't know if you noticed, but that 17th hole on the course in Tokyo, it was like a dummy par four, like a 340-yard par four. And so they were all trying to bomb their tee shot onto yep. the green, and they most of them were hitting the bunker just before the green. What a great hole for an Olympic golf tournament based on that uh, aggressive shot selection. So that was really fascinating. I did not like this, the seven-way playoff for okay. bronze. Nice you know, if, if it's for gold, of course – but for bronze, give out seven bronze medals. No one's going to get killed. And they all did, in in point of fact, finish tied for third. You should just give out seven bronze medals. You know, in boxing, if you lose a semifinal bout, both, you, both of the semifinal losers get a bronze. Okay. That was silly. Still, Olympic golf was really compelling. And Xander
1: Schauffele, the American, took home the gold. I think what Sabatini got the silver. Is that correct?
2: Yep, with a sixty-one. Yeah.
1: Yep, shot sixty-one on Sunday, which was which was fantastic. And like you said, a lot of risk reward on that golf course. A lot of guys going for it in two, trying to drive that green on seventeen. It was a, it was a cool it was a cool uh, experience. You know, um, another event I want to talk about with you is the tennis. I know you and I are kind of our te- tennis guys. I know you you follow it pretty closely. I enjoy watching a, a good bit of tennis as well. Novak Djokovic, the, the odds-on favorite. One, or, I mean, he uh, he lost in the, I think the quarterfinal round.
2: Semis, yeah, Semis. Semis, okay. Yeah.
1: Had a little bit of a, you know, hissy fit at the end of it. And then the thing I didn't really like, what he really did, which I really didn't like one bit. He then bailed out on the mixed doubles. He was yeah, in the mixed deprived doubles. his
2: partner of a chance to win bronze. Yeah, exactly. I mean, completely agree. Yeah, I mean,
1: just a to, to me, it's a bush league move. You know, it's not like this is probably the other girl's probably biggest moment of her career to win a medal like that. And for him to just bail out and not play one more match, I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate that. And I just don't like that these big-time tennis players, Nadal's done it, Federer had a little glimpse of that in the French Open, and now Djokovic. You got to sometimes think for the greater good of the sport as opposed to just your, your own well-being, your thoughts.
2: That that is true. I would say that uh, you know if they scheduled the doubles first and the singles later, then you don't have that conflict. But but you know that that's that's a, a, like a smaller issue. Yeah, I mean Stojanovic, uh, Djokovic's partner. She, you know what what's she to do? You know she she invested herself in that. Yeah, Djokovic needs to give it a go. And maybe maybe the fuel tank's empty. But nevertheless, you gotta at least go out there and try. But but speaking about that fuel tank for Djokovic, you know that's a salient point. You know this was two weeks after Wimbledon. Ash Barty, who uh, won Wimbledon on the women's yeah. side, she lost the first round. Now you know credit to her. She and she won a bronze medal because Djokovic withdrew that was right. that was her mixed doubles bronze medal so for, so she did get a medal out of it which is great but of course it came in doubles but in singles you know she was spent after Wimbledon it took sh- so much out of her and so it brings up the larger point that you know Olympic tennis in the summer and the weather was nasty and miserable <sighs> you saw a few yes. women's players get wheeled off the court because yep. it was so brutally hot you know first off they had a roof on the center court they should have just used it, you know. I, I'm, I'm. Now I know plenty of people disagree, and I, and I understand. You know, sport is a test of the whole person and stamina, fitness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But like these, these players today, they play a demanding sport and they play a packed schedule. You know, if this Olympic tournament was held four weeks after Wimbledon, okay, you've had a plenty of time to recharge and go at it in the heat. See who's the best man, the best woman. Fine, but this was two weeks after Wimbledon. Right. That is a really short turnaround. You're flying half the way around the world, and Djokovic has done so much heavy lifting that you know, it, you know, he was obviously the favorite coming in, but there was certainly the chance that the the just the accumulated workload of the year was going to get to him. That's exactly what happened. So my big point, Jason, is: is anyone really going to get bent out of shape if we just move Olympic tennis to the winter? You put it indoors in February, and let's keep yeah. keep this in mind. Let's keep this point in mind. In the summer, early August, you have we're, we're about to have the Canada Masters, the uh, Toronto for the for the men and Montreal for the yeah. women. Yeah. Those are both one thousand point tournaments, very significant tournaments yeah. in terms of rankings points and prize money. You don't have any one thousand point tournaments in February. So you can and you know the Australian Open was in fe, uh, February this year but that was the pandemic. normally it's in the last two weeks of January right So you can take three weeks off you yep. then play a week of Olympic tennis indoors so climate controlled it's comfortable it, it's also early in the season when players are fresher and then you take a week off, a week and a half off to go to Indian Wells. In its normal March slot, of course, Indian Wells is going to be in October this year, but next year it's going to be back in its normal March slot. So really, uh, I think tennis should, should just go to the winner, That's a great point Uh, in in February. It would fit the tennis calendar so much better right here. It's just crammed into so much right after Wimbledon, right before Toronto and Montreal and the U.S. Open series leading up to the U.S. Open. It's such a better fit in February that that really is the big epiphany I had about Olympic tennis this year.
1: All right. Now. that okay, I'm going to get you my last. We'll get you one more Djokovic comment here. Your thoughts on him going to Flushing Meadow to, to complete the slam. What do you think? I mean, He's gonna have to, he's gonna have time to rest. He's gonna have a good three weeks, three and a half weeks before that before the U.S. Open starts. You're you, you know uh, handicap his chance at the at the Slam.
2: Yeah. So I, you know the main thing is looking looking at the draw. You know you're gonna have Rafael Nadal back in the mix. He wasn't there at Wimbledon. Right. That's point number one. Point number two, Stefano Tsitsipas, who you know lost in the first round at Wimbledon. You know he had just made the Roland Garros final. And as you know, Jason, this year, there were just two weeks between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. Right. The previous several years, there have been three weeks. So it was a quick turnaround for Tsitsipas. He's still not used to, to going deep at a major and then backing it up immediately after. But now he should be physically and mentally right. fresh. And so let's see where Nadal and Tsitsipas are in the draw. Also Medvedev, but right. I think Nadal, Nadal one, Sitsipas two, Medvedev three. Let's see where they are in the draw relative to Djokovic. Um, I, I, you know, Dominic team. he's had a, a wrist injury. Apparently his recuperation is going well, but like he's punted this year basically. Yeah, he's not so I downgrade his chances. You know, Zverev, yeah, it's interesting. Zverev played the Olympics aggressively and people are wondering why can't he play like this all the time? you know, and then he gets to majors and he just pushes the ball for well behind the baseline. If he plays aggressively like he did in the Olympics, you know, he could be a a much better player. So we'll see if that aggression goes to New York. History says we should doubt that it will, because he just goes into this passive shell in best of five, best of three brings out a a better version of him, uh, but we have to see it in five set matches, but it's Nadal one, uh, Sitsipas two, Medvedev three is the challengers to Djokovic in New York. Yeah, I, and that's one thing, one thing I would say to the audience, and I've never been yet, and I'm going to, at some point in my life, I'm going to
1: go night match in New York at the U.S. Open, a, a night session, you know, a, a fourth round quarterfinal deal, usually uh-huh. they, they always play all day Labor Day, which is a great day for tennis in New York City, so one of these days I'm going to make it to New York for a, either a Labor Day or a, a night session kind of session for the U.S. Open.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, we. hey, you and I both grew up on Jimmy Connors, yes. that amazing 1991 run. Yep. And then late in the 1990s, it was the Todd Martin Power Hour. Yes. <laughs> uh, a Todd Martin fourth round match going till 1.15 in the morning. Yep. Yep. I mean, you know, that was the vintage stuff. And on USA yep. Network with yep. Ted Robinson and John McEnroe, I mean, that, that was the real deal.
1: That was awesome. And I remember that stuff. Yeah, great.
2: Late night at the Open, yes.
1: Great. No, no doubt. I, and four or five years ago, ESPN had there were, I can't remember who was playing, but they played to about two o'clock in the morning and it was a classic
2: match and it went five sets. Yeah, there was a yeah. Chilich and Demonar. Yes until 226 yes. in the morning. Yes. Uh-huh. I, I I was up watching
1: it. I I'm with you. I love I love that stuff. I think they do, you know, Ted Robinson's a great tennis guy. Mackinac.
2: You had Nadal and team playing that five-hour quarterfinal yep. a few years ago. Absolutely, also, absolutely. Yeah, late so, late night at the Open is the best. Definitely it looking is. forward to that.
1: Absolutely. Um, one, more, one more Olympic thought, then we'll get to the college football. Give me uh, – Simone Biles, as we're taping this, she's just won her bronze medal in the, in the balance beam. Good for her that she came back and at least participated in one of that. Just your thoughts on that whole situation with Biles and, uh, you know sh- – People have different views you get different you got you know you got all you got all all spectrums of opinions
2: on this your thoughts. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are overthinking this, you know her her dominance has been so pronounced that it was just expected it was automatic, you know money in the bank, you know, of course she's going to get a pile of gold medals again. Um, like you know know, Michael Phelps you know winning you know four five six golds each each Olympiad for several straight Olympics so people just expected that of Simone Biles but hey you know she's a human being she feels pressure and you know she's been through a lot and let's remember she was you know part of the Larry Nassar's reign of terror I mean she's been through legitimate trauma like you could argue the point on Naomi Osaka Like, you know, you could say that it's kind of manufactured, you know, her, her team of consultants is kind of creating a, a, you know, something around her. Now, I, you know, I I believe her when she says she's suffered from depression, but you could still make a reasonable argument that that's a lot of what's going on around her is manufactured. Then stop doing
1: interviews, Naomi. Don't do interviews
2: (laughs) if you're going to bail out of Wimbledon. Yeah. So, I mean, compared to uh, Osaka, Simone Biles has been through legitimate trauma. No one doubts that. And so she didn't perform well. She faced pressure. So the idea that, Oh, you know, she, she was not, you know, helpful to her teammates. Like she let them down, please. She didn't perform well. We're overthinking it. She didn't perform well. It happens. It happens to athletes. We're not perfect. We're not robots. You know, of course she would have wanted to win a few gold medals. That's why that was her plan. It didn't work out. She got some stage fright. That's that's what it is. And yep. and and by backing out when she did, she probably was enabled the team to get a silver instead of a bronze or being left off the podium completely. So, hey, she didn't perform well. A perfectly fair game to criticize her for that, but the idea that like she was being this selfish prima donna that's what I don't want to see.
1: Right. And, and and again, this is a total monetary comment, but you know her sponsors, all the sponsors that pumped in all the money to support the Olympics with her and all that. I you know they were not happy with all that going on because you know they're gonna they're gonna play a public face of, of positivity, but you know behind the scenes those sponsors were not happy that she didn't even if she didn't wouldn't have won the gold to not even get the exposure on NBC and the Olympic platform that she would have
2: gotten had she performed absolutely and NBC's taking a bath in the ratings so you know that that's understandable but you yeah. know this is this is about the athletes not the tv cameras and the other thing i'll say this to, to, to support biles is people don't
1: realize the danger that's in gymnastics compared to you know if you're having a, if you're having an anxiety attack in tennis there's no yeah. real physical danger to you whereas on those yeah. and those balance beams the uneven bars everything, one catastrophic error in your, yeah. you could paralyze yourself, kill yourself legitimately or severely
2: injure yourself. No doubt. No doubt about it. It's, and it's a totally different uh, kind of athletic endeavor. Absolutely. You've made, you made the point. Yep. All right. Let's transition to, 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 to the upcoming college football season, all the
1: mayhem going on with Oklahoma, Texas leaving the big 12 here in a couple of years, heading to the SEC. What's going to happen to the What's going to happen to the Big Twelve? How does the Pac-12 play into this? Because they're kind of the the next big the next big league that that would kind of, you know, suck in some of these teams potentially. Just your general thoughts of Oklahoma, Texas leaving the Big Twelve, and just kind of behind the scenes, Greg Sankey and those guys having the whatever secret meetings they had to make
2: that happen so quickly. I think I think the main observation, two two main observations to make here, Jason. One is, if we didn't have the pandemic, which made which made it urgent to get an expanded playoff in order to generate the money to recover the shortfall of right. pandemic budgets. Right. If we didn't have the pandemic and which led to the twelve team playoff, this doesn't happen because in a four team playoff, it would obviously be insanity for Oklahoma and Texas, but especially Oklahoma to leave for the SEC because you have Alabama there to get the SEC's spot in a four-team playoff. But in a 12-team playoff, whoa, You know the SEC can get four or five spots, gets three or four at-large bids, so Oklahoma's place in the playoff is not jeopardized. Okay, the seeding's a little different, but if you're Oklahoma, okay, if you're a seven-seed and you play second seed at Ohio State, you think, hey, we can go ahead and do it. No big deal, uh, you know, we, just as long as we avoid Bama until the semis at least. You know, so is not really disadvantaged all that much uh, in a 12-team playoff, even if it's a lower seed. So that is why this was all possible. And, of course, you have to then make the other central point is that television, ESPN – pulling the strings because obviously ESPN's invested in the 12 team playoff. ESPN's invested in getting all this money. Uh, So that was right in sync with what Texas and Oklahoma were wanting. And then the other piece is, you know, Bob Bowlsby just didn't drive a hard enough bargain with Fox because Oklahoma wanted more night games on Fox. Oklahoma didn't like being stuck on big noon Saturday on Fox. You know, it worked for Ohio state in the big 10, so that's been really good for Fox, but Oklahoma didn't want it. So Bob Bowlesby needed to be right in the middle of there with Fox saying, hey, we have Oklahoma, I have Oklahoma and Texas to tend to. And if they're not going to get night games, we need to, to reconsider our partnership. We need to tear up our contracts. He needed to play hardball, and he clearly did not. And so that, that's, that's the, the centrality of television in all of this is unmistakable. And so that leads to uh, the news earlier today. You know, we're, the show might be released later, but as we record this show, yes, yes. it's Tuesday evening. And earlier on Tuesday, August 3rd, you had Bob Bowlesby meeting with new PAC 12 Commissioner George Kliavkov. So that obviously raises the question A, will there be a super merger of the eight? left behind Big 12 teams with the Pac-12, so that would be a 20-team super conference, Yeah, or will they just do a scheduling series? And you might remember the Pac-12 and the Big 10 wanted to do a scheduling series. All, every team in the conference would play each other. That, that, that plan was hashed circa 2011, 2012. It was going to start in 2017, but it got scrubbed right. before it ever right. began. So this might be the time for... Uh, you know, the Big 12 to fill the Big 10's role and do, an, do a scheduling series, not a super merger. I mean, that's, an, that's one option, but I think the more likely outcome is a scheduling series where the Big 12 and Pac-12 create a lot of new TV inventory. Now, whether that goes under the Fox umbrella or another TV umbrella, that's the open question because, you know, CBS is giving up the SEC to yes. ESPN and Disney. So maybe Bob Bowlesby and George Kleavkoff uh, seek CBS. He goes. Bob Bullsby's is probably really pissed at Fox. <laughs> right. So maybe then he then goes to CBS to spurn Fox. Uh, you know, poke poke at Fox. So you're. Um, so what you're they- saying is three thirty
1: Saturday. You're saying 3:30 Saturday? We're gonna have Oregon State going to Manhattan, Kansas to see Kansas State in a well, sh- in a Saturday well, showdown. No,
2: that would probably that would probably be like a a, a noon game I on know, just, ESPN News. Yeah, right. Uh, or a new a new a noon game on uh, CBS Sports Network. Maybe, yeah, right. And then 3:30 you get like an Oregon Ohio State. Yeah. Or 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 rather, uh, you know, the Big 12. You'd get uh, TCU and Oregon around. Oklahoma State, Oklahoma State, and uh, USC, you right know, in the three in the three thirty slot. Yeah. All
1: right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this to you from the Pac-12 perspective. Is the Pac-12 better to try to create an alliance with the Big Twelve or potentially the Big Ten because of their Rose Bowl affiliation? You know, USC, Ohio State's a much better thought than USC, TCU, or UCLA, Michigan, or UCLA you know michigan state's a much better national draw recruiting as opposed to ucla and you know pick it smu or houston or oklahoma state your thoughts on what the what's the pac-12s thinking do they go, do they try to create a big 12 alliance or a P- big 10 alliance
2: yeah excellent question and so uh lots of layers to peel away as you can imagine here one is that if you talk to PAC-12 insiders, people such as like John Wellner of the San Jose Mercury News, John Canzano uh, of the Oregonian, the people who really have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in, behind the scenes in the PAC-12, they will tell you there's not one big 12 school of the eight left behind that adds real substantial uh, media rights value or academic value uh, to the PAC-12. It's not a cultural fit for any of those schools Um, So they will tell you that the PAC-12 really shouldn't try to take on any big 12 schools. However, now here's the countervailing point, is that, you know, the big 12 needs the PAC-12 a lot more than the PAC-12 needs the big 12. You know, the big 12 is on the verge of dying. It's on the verge of collapse. So the PAC-12, I I mean, extortion is not the right word, but like the the PAC-12 could potentially leverage something with a big 12 school saying, oh you really need our help you really need our help okay well it's gonna cost you you know so if like if if george kliavkov can do something like that to get a lot of revenue a lot of added revenue into the coffers that might offset the lack of cultural fit you know so the thing is with taking on more conference members you're splitting a pie 14 or 16 ways instead of 12. so that would ostensibly reduce the amount of incoming revenue but if you increase the revenue pie so substantially you can still increase all 16 teams all 16 schools overall take-home revenue so if george klyavkov can arrive at a plan which gets that goal like if 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 the 12 original pac-12 schools in exchange for allowing two or four members in in exchange for that which they probably don't want but if if in exchange for that They'll make 10, 15 million extra dollars per year sure. over a 10, 15 year period. That that probably sounds reasonably attractive. Oop. Now, you also asked about the Big 12 versus the Big Ten. So uh, having talked about the Big 12, yes, the Big Ten is obviously a better cultural fit. You, you know, it's worth remembering in the pandemic, like the Pac 12 was imitating the Big Ten. Like the Big Ten would do this, the Pac 12 did it. days later you know they were both very much in step they both had that idea for a series uh, a decade ago and you know there have been whispers and some usc fans that i see on twitter they say hey we should go to the big 10. usc and ucla should go to the big 10 maybe also oregon and washington but but you know the academics are there like there's much more of an academic and cultural match uh, between the two conferences and as you said correctly uh, the quality of games are better you know we have oregon and ohio state Washington and Michigan in week two of this season, you know, so there are those are very attractive high end games you wouldn't get the same level of quality with the eight left behind big 12 schools so yeah the big 10 should be the first place the Pac 12 goes. But you're probably not likely to see a deal there, except for like a scheduling series, like not, not a merger or not a switching of members. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, the Big 12 would then enter the conversation. And it goes back to that point about George Kliavkov leveraging revenue. If he can find a way to get lots of money uh, from an acquisition of a few Big 12 schools, that could be considered uh, in exchange for the lack of cultural fit. It sounds like Kansas is probably going to. Kind of I would I would think go to the
1: Big Ten because of the basketball tie-in as well. Sounds like they might be the if, if a team if another team leaves, sounds like Kansas might be a big a perfect Big Ten candidate because you're geographically very close. Obviously the basketball profile is US is it who who is the one or two power players in the Pac 12? Is it is it what USC, UCLA, Oregon? Are those the three kind of heavyweights when it comes to ADs? decision makers leaning on the commissioner who are the through the two or three schools that are going to wield the most power in these decisions for the pac 12
2: yeah that's correct it's it's the you know the, the schools in the la markets right. you know with all that 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 money and 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 leverage in, you know in, in media rights negotiations and, and phil then Knight. oregon with phil knight's money yes and then you probably probably put washington fourth because right. washington has had recent success major market uh so the, those would probably be the, the the four major teams. Some interesting proposals that I've seen uh, in discussions that I've had. One person uh, said, you know, uh, invite Gonzaga for basketball only. Yep. And if, you've, if you if the Pac-12 invites Gonzaga for basketball only, invite Kansas for basketball only. Like you don't want Kansas's football, but hey, and Gonzaga And, and Boise for
1: football or for a basketball for football. conference.
2: Boise state for football. Yeah. Like they're not going to invite BYU because playing on Sundays, it's just, it's too much of a a difficulty to get around, but yeah, Boise state would, would be potentially an option. And, and, you know, if you whiff on Gonzaga and Kansas as basketball only, you could consider San Diego state as a basketball only. Right. I don't think you, I don't think you invite San Diego state for football. You need something more high end, but you could, you can consider San Diego state as a basketball only member. So you know, there's there's lots of uh, pieces to the puzzle here, and and of course the Pac-12 needs to be creative. You know, we've 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 seen Larry Scott be very stubborn, uh, very you know, just uh, he would he would establish a position and he wouldn't budge from it, and no one uh, benefited from that. And so right. Klyavkov, you know, who worked at MGM Resorts, right, obviously has some savvy in terms of uh, how to expand the entertainment possibilities. Um, you know, we're we're really interested out here in Pac-12 country to see what he comes up with what he does to to manage the situation uh one thing we haven't directly addressed jason is that with oklahoma and texas going to the sec as part of a 12 team playoff you know we i think we had mentioned on a previous show that there was a question about whether the playoff would start in 2023 Mm -hmm. or 2026 when the 12-year playoff contract ran out so I think we're clearly on a roadmap for the playoff starting in 2023. Yes. And if that's the case, and if that is the case, you know, the next round of Pac-12 media rights negotiations is scheduled, scheduled for 2024. But Kliavkov and the Pac-12 CEO group, they can reconsider that. They can tear up their existing contracts and negotiate something now or relatively soon. So if they add members. You know, one would think that that in particular, that would be an incentive to tear up your contracts, do something entirely new. But because the playoff is starting in 2023, it might be good for the Pac-12 to redraw the contract anyway, because a 12 team playoff means the Pac-12 is going to have at least one team in the playoff every year, which is something it hasn't been able to count on the past several years. And if in a really good year. Um, and and you know this is this is the dream scenario for the Pac-12, and I speak I speak from a USC perspective here. The dream scenario is USC doesn't do well this year, but doesn't do not doing well this year means that Clay Helton gets fired, USC hires Matt Campbell before the 2022 season right. or another up and coming rock star coach, and then by 2023 USC has a playoff quality program, and so you can get Oregon and USC as playoff worthy programs by 2023 and you know Oregon's been recruiting at a top 10 level so the idea that Oregon will be a top 10 top five team in 2023 very very realistic so that really is the dream scenario I think for the Pac-12 in football and so if you tear up your media rights deals now you could have something in 2023 where you have two playoff teams you're making more money you have a more attractive television draws it could really all fall into place for the conference
1: great great point great point you listen to the powers on sports podcast i'm jason along with matt Zemek, the editor at trojan wire again he covers all things usc the pac-12 doing a great job giving us some insight on the on all the conference realignments and such one thing you're going to see too with all this conference alignment the mountain west the aac conference usa they're all going to get morphed into two or three of those instead of it being five or six of those conferences you're probably going to have two or three really big ones and there's not going to be all these little piddly conferences you're going to have the whack and the mountain west might merge the conference usa and the aac might merge you know conf- you know those type things i think you're going to see some of that stuff get 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 morphed into smaller in the bigger numbers but smaller number of conferences
2: Yeah, so the the very a very big point of interest, obviously, and you know I have my own thoughts in terms of what makes a good fit for the various conferences, and I realize that in the Big Ten and the ACC, those two conferences, the obvious the obvious big goal is Notre Dame. You know, if we can get Notre Dame, that really matters. And then you know, because because Notre Dame, because compared to Notre Dame, other other schools, you know, don't have nearly the same prestige or TV uh, drawing power. It seems to me that the ACC and the Big Ten are not very interested in uh, other uh, high-end uh, uh, football schools. And so, that in particular, two key examples, West Virginia and Cincinnati. Like, they, they both make sense for the ACC because the ACC has such a strong basketball brand. Right. And the ACC cares about basketball to an extent. The SEC and Big 12 do not. So, you know, on, on the surface, Cincinnati and, and West Virginia – would be attractive fits for the ACC, like you know, West Virginia, Pitt, the Backyard Brawl would be an ACC game again, and you'd have West Virginia against Virginia right. and, and against Virginia Tech. You would get a lot of natural rivalries, in particular from West Virginia. Also, Cincinnati, like Cincinnati, is still in that part. You know, it would be in that uh, northern part of the ACC footprint. You know, it's not like a ridiculous overextension of your geographical uh, right. footprint. Um, so but I I don't get the sense that the the Big 10 or the ACC are looking at West Virginia or Cincinnati right now. So that leads me to the idea of that the, the how will the Big 12 and the AAC fit together when this is all said and done? You know, is the AAC going to take from the Big 12? Is the Big 12 going to take from the AAC? How's that going to work out? Like I have no idea, but I'm 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 I what I do have a good feel for is that you're going to see a a transition one way or the other. I just don't know which way, but uh, like, you know, you have Cincinnati in the AAC, you have West Virginia in the big 12. I would say that West Virginia and Cincinnati are going to be in the same conference. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing to think about if the big 12 survives, I think you're going to see them reach into Florida,
1: central Florida and South Florida as possibilities because they want to get into that market, the Tampa, Orlando market, the TV market, the recruiting market as well. So I think, I think if the big 12 does make it, I think you're going to see UCF potentially as another wild card team school that could be in play to go to a couple of different places because of the, because of the recruiting base and because of the, the Florida television market.
2: Yeah, it's very possible. And then, you know, you mentioned the other, uh, the other conferences like the mountain West. Uh, yeah. I don't know where mountain West teams would go. Like maybe, maybe you would see, Another Mountain West program, maybe go to the WCC for basketball only maybe, but like it, you're, it's going to be a, you're going to have a hard time taking a Mountain West school and grafting it in with uh, conference USA. Right. And, you know, m- may, Maybe the AAC, because you have Tulsa uh, and SMU, you know, you could, you could make an argument like remember, the WAC uh, the Western athletic conference used to have, used to be very far flung. Lot uh, you'd tech. have Hawaii, you'd have Louisiana tech, you know, all over the place. So maybe you'd get something like that with the AAC, but, I, but um, the, you know, the, the Sunbelt conference USA, I don't see how like the mountain West yeah. is going to fit in with them. So I think Mount, mountain West, AAC, big 12, you could see some churn and some turnover among those three conferences I don't see Conference USA uh, and and the Sun Belt undergoing uh, undergoing an extreme makeover uh, as a result of this process. And those two, that
1: might be a situation where those two merge. The Sun Belt and Conference USA may maybe have to merge to 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 one expand their TV opportunities and things like that. So that's what I think you're going to see is some of these conf- these smaller conferences that are geographically close to each other potentially merge because again there's only so many dollars to go around and and those guys can't be left out in the wind with, with no TV deal. You got to have a TV deal uh, one way or the other. All right. Last, last topic. I want to get you out of here on name, image, and likeness. How has that gone over in the PAC 12? You know, is the USC quarterback getting big deals as opposed to the guy at Washington state, or is it the reverse where maybe a guy up in Washington state or Oregon state where that's the only game in town, he, he or she might be the guy or the, or the girl athlete that gets a lot of some endorsement deals because they're the only game in town. Whereas in LA, is anybody caring about who the, is anybody giving a deal to the USC quarterback or the UCLA quarterback when there's so many other entertainment entities, uh, advertising opportunities,
2: how is the NIL worked out in the PAC 12 through your thoughts? It's very early in the process, of course, but the, the early read is that, you know, if you're the USC quarterback, like that's a glamour position. And so even though the Los Angeles market is, is you know, has a lot of different uh, points of interest, especially the Dodgers and the Lakers right now, um, you're still the USC quarterback. Like you still get the Heisman buzz, you still get on the watch list that other players won't. So it's still a position of leverage and like there's, so there's a company or there's a, certainly a set of commercial interests out there that will want to do the deal with the athlete. Like it's not so much the athlete has to find the company, the company will go out and find the athlete. So there's right. still that access at the bigger programs, which in football, that's where NIL is, is going in the, er, in the early stages. It's in the non-football sports where you're seeing players from smaller towns smaller communities uh like with large instagram social media followings that it's in the non-football sports there are some two sisters who play for fresno state yes women's basketball they inked like a six-figure deal within hours after july 1st and the nil uh became allowed so it's in the non-football range like and think of uh outside the pac-12 think of in the sec Gymnastics is big in, in the SEC, like LSU, Alabama, Georgia. So, G- SEC gymnasts, that's an area where uh, athletes who wouldn't have made, um, hadn't been making money, you know, can now really cash in and out and your way. Other niche sports in other regions of the country. Think about like a Minnesota hockey player, right? Or, you know, other niches like that.
1: Women out your way, women's volleyball is huge, men's and women's volleyball. So, you got the beautiful you know, the very attractive women's volleyball player, or tennis player, she might be the one doing the car commercial or the, or the barbecue restaurant ad or what, you know, whatever the clothing line. I think out there is going to really help because the non, the, the non-revenue sport athlete out your way is probably going to be the one that could benefit, you know, the, again, the women's volleyball, beach volleyball is big out there. So uh, women's softball is another big, big yes. thing out of the West yes. coast. Yes.
2: Yeah. So, also in Oklahoma, like Oklahoma won the national title. If you're a great softball player at Oklahoma, you are getting a, n- a nice little deal. Something, right, right. Your advertisers in localities, in and around Norman, Tulsa, Stillwater, they're definitely looking for you. All right, last thing to get you out of any, any new news? on Last time we
1: spoke, you, you broke the story about the Arizona State issue. Any, any updates on the Arizona State kind of football recruiting issues? They were kind of – they kind of got
2: exposed – and they got caught with doing some illegal recruiting stuff. Any news? Yeah, there was a story that broke about seven to 10 days ago. ends coach Adam Brenneman was excused from the program for his dealings. But like that's that's a very, very little fish. You know, Where we're, we're uh, in terms of the big fish, which are, of course, Herm Edwards and his defensive coordinator and re- recruiting coordinator Antonio Pierce. It's been very, very quiet on that front. And it's really interesting that uh, you also have in the Pac-12 uh, Nick Rolovich, the head coach for yeah. Washington State, refusing to get vaccinated. And like he has every right to make the personal decision. Let's be clear on this. Like people think, oh, he's being forced to to get a vaccine. It's not so much that he has the right to make that decision. It's just that he he works for a university right. which has come out with a, a scientific study saying, hey, we want all our athletes. All our personnel to get vaccinated. So if you're a coach, you're trying to sell your team on being a team player, on you know being part of the mission of the team of the school. And it's that political element where Rolovich is, is creating problems for himself. It's not his stance on vaccines. It's that you know it's be a team player. Right. You know right. why are you pushing back against your administration? That's the the sensitive spot. So I mentioned that just because it was felt. Uh, some Washington state bloggers that I talked to, they said, you know, Hey, there's a chance to fire him with cause, you know, meaning that we can save money for the next coaching hire. We can boot him out, get a reboot of the program. So there was a, there was a, a sense a few weeks ago that maybe Washington state could push out Rolovich before the start of the season. So, so in other words, Rolovich and Herman words. There was a very real feeling in the PAC 12 in late July that maybe two coaches might get fired before week one so the update jason very simply is doesn't seem to be happening things have really quieted down i think the administrations both want to hunker down get through the season maybe then you fire the coach after the season so you're not on the hook for as much money that's the way this seems to be going there was a sense that oh we really needed to act right away that Those fires have died down, and it looks like those coaches are, are going to work through the 2021 season. So that's, that's the update on uh, in both uh, Arizona State and Washington State.
1: Yeah, I know that, that whole Rolovich situation, you know, obviously he can have his opinion, but you can't – as the head football coach, you cannot be out publicly, you know, going against what the university's trying to trying to get across – Probably from a conference perspective. They don't a big Pac 12 conference didn't want no part of Rolovich running his mouth like that. Again, you can have the personal opinion, but you gotta have some you have to play to some degree the company line of what your university and your institution kind of wants you to do.
2: Yes. And the, the just the final point to make on Rolovich is that you know the Pac-12 seems to be likely to implement a for, game forfeit policy akin to what Greg Sankey yeah. and the SEC have put forward. So the one thing that would get Rolovich fired before the end of the season is if Washington state forfeits a game, right? Boom. That will be a powder keg. He's got to be out of here right away. That would be able to take him down. But unless that happens, he'll make it through the season. That seems to be the insider consensus at this point. Yeah. you're No, you're right. You're right. Well, Matt, great work, man. We're going to have you on here real soon. We're going to do a PAC
1: 12 football preview special along with, with some other conferences around the country. So you're my guy in the PAC 12. Appreciate the time, man. Always a pleasure and have a great week.
2: I always have a blast on your show. Thanks for having me back. Thanks, man.
1: Real quick, Matt, tell everybody where they can find
2: you online. Yeah. Matt Zemek, Z-E-M-E-K. And I'm at Trojans Wire. I also have a Patreon site where I put out uh, occasional college sports podcasts. going to be doing more of that as we get closer to the season. So it's, it's going to be fun times. Cool. Great job, Matt. We'll talk to you real soon, my man. Thanks.
1: of the Powers on Sports podcast. Have a great week.